Brent Pius, an elaborate treatise concerning prayer and the answer of prayer by John Brown of Wamfrey. We're up to chapter 17. How we ask not in the name of Christ. Uh, the verse before us, John 14, 13 and 14. And whatsoever shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So last time we looked at what it is to ask in Christ's name. Uh, now we're going to look at a, a number of, of um, uh, things, particular things that would show us that we're actually not praying in the name of Christ alone. Right, so things that people uh, may tend to do, may entertain thoughts and, and intents that they may entertain in their praying that actually... Um, that actually, in, in a sense, is making them sometimes more than just in a, in a sense, uh, very directly uh, making them divide the um, the burden of their prayer between uh, Christ and something else. Right. So uh, we we want to look then at at um, the issue. Uh, and a number of particulars that pertain to this question. Uh, he, he's eager, Brown is eager to point out that if you're not circumspect, if you're not uh, conscientious in, in praying, uh, that it is, in fact, in, in certain respects, very easy uh, to allow your prayers to become something other than acceptable prayers to God. <clears throat> so there are things that <clears throat> things that you can check, things that you can uh, examine with respect to the the manner of your prayer. All right. So we're going to begin with question three thirty seven. And um, looking at um, what it means with respect, uh, what what it is uh, that he has in, in his intention here in this title, how we ask not in the name of Christ. So Brown's concern. What is Brown's concern in this chapter? His concern is that we might see clearly how far short <clears throat> we often come in this duty of prayer. <clears throat> and in particular, how often it is we ask in prayer, but not in the name of Christ. And that's a problem. Right? That's a huge problem. So, Brown's concern 
is and should be your concern. You know, it's very easy to think that just because I mention the name of Jesus, that I'm praying in the name of Jesus, and, and Brown doesn't want you to fall into that trap. Right? Remember last time, <clears throat> actually for the past couple of weeks, uh, he's these chapters that we've been covering, he's been trying to get you to understand somewhat of uh, concerning who this is, uh, Jesus, right? who Jesus really is. And the reason for that is, as Paul says in his second epistle to the Corinthians, there are many false Christs that are in the world. Right? There are false gospels. There are false brethren. Um, it's, it's very easy to go wrong on this. <clears throat> and frankly, the, the history of the early church is um, a history that illustrates how easy it is to go wrong as to the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. The early church creeds spent a lot of time, or I should say the councils that led to these early church creeds, spent a lot of time uh, debating points and, and um, defending points of Christian doctrine against various assertions of heretical groups. You know, there are some people in the early church who said that Jesus is just an exalted man. They deny that he is God. There are others that said that he wasn't really a man. <clears throat> this is just an appearance. You know, there were others who denied that he is the eternal Son of God. They didn't believe in the Trinity. And there are all kinds of flavors of these heresies. And so Brown has been very careful in the last few chapters uh, to make you conscious of, of who it is, that this is the eternal Son of God incarnate in his mediatorial character. <clears throat> That's the name uh, of the one in whose name we're praying. He was also very careful to spell out um, the uh, the uh, nature of the mediatorial office, the consequences of of that office, uh, the implications of that office, and how understanding that should make us reflect not only on ourselves but also on God to whom we're praying in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> but he realizes as well, uh, remember the Reformation from Popery, one of the big concerns. The Roman church very often has people doing things simply by rote without any real encouragement that they add to that outward um, 
recitation, that outward rote uh, confessing, uh, that there would be any inward affection or discipline of the heart. Okay, so Brown Brown is aware of that, and and when when these are just words, when these are not um, heartfelt beliefs, it's going to be very easy to drift out of making use of Christ in prayer. Right? When we are not clear about, um, we're not clear about our, our um, status before God. You know, that we, we're not clear about our status as sinners. <clears throat> we're not clear about our status as redeemed sinners. All of those things are impediments to right prayer. And when we're when we don't keep that kind of focus before us, it's easy to fall into a lot of um, errors and fall out of praying in the name of Christ. And so that's what Brown is concerned to to have you understand here. You know, because it's very easy for people <clears throat> to um, fall into that conceit that, you know, well, I mentioned Jesus when I prayed. Well, that's good. Your mentioning of Jesus is simply not enough. <clears throat> All right, 338. What is the first particular that shows us we're not praying in Christ's name alone? <clears throat> the first particular is this. When we do not draw all of our encouragement to prayer from Christ alone, but from other things beside him, then we're not asking in his name. Right, and, and you might think, well, how do I do this? We're going to discuss this in just a moment. But the very fact that he's bringing this up should alarm you. All right, if you're, if you're reflective at all about your spiritual estate, you should be thinking to yourself, um, this doesn't even sound good. Right? If, if I, I mean, if I understand who and what I am before God apart from Christ, uh, and and who and, and what I am in Christ, there's no comparison. So if I'm drawing encouragements <clears throat> for prayer from something other than Christ, from something outside of Christ, there is in that, implied in that, there is um, a dependence upon our own working, 
which is in in uh, in a roundabout way. <coughs> um, what's going on here is we are <coughs> we are um, asserting our own merit in some respect, right? And making our own merit somehow part of of um, our appeal and the ground upon which we're expecting an answer to this prayer. I mean, if think about this, if you're <coughs> if you are actually um, uh, finding encouragement from something other than Christ, you are to that degree relying on something other than Christ for the answer to that prayer. And that means that you're looking for something um, that is a matter of uh, human merit, meriting, human meriting. So... <clears throat> 3.39 then. <clears throat> In what ways do we draw encouragement from something other than the name of Christ? And he, he, um, he breaks this down into four different, these are really categories, I think, of, of, um, Sources of encouragement or um, bases upon which we're encouraged to pray to God. So, 339a then, the first, uh, he says, one of the ways that we draw encouragement from something other than the name of Christ is when we're encouraged to draw near to God in prayer because we find ourselves in some good present disposition and frame such as having our heart well fixed and prepared. <coughs> In other words, um, and this is actually this is actually an argument uh, there's uh, there's actually an interesting section in in Rutherford's um, influences of the life of grace where he's encouraging you to pray even when you don't feel like it, right? To, to continue to pray, to persevere. And he talks about, and he references, um, actually at this point, uh, John Preston, who was a Puritan uh, just a little earlier than, than Rutherford. He um, talks about the idea that uh, there's a sense in which Praying and, and really, in, in this sense, going through your, basically any of your religious devotions, your religious exercises, when you are less inclined <clears throat> is sort of a warming up and an invitation to the spirit of grace to inflame you more and more into that, right? So... I, I bring that up because it's that's sort of the opposite 
of, of what uh, Brown is addressing here. Brown is saying, look, um, when you pray because you feel like you're, you're in that disposition and frame to do so, you're actually at that time, if, if that's going to make you more inclined to pray, that's actually going to uh, quite possibly end up being a very serious distraction, detour, uh, and, and this attempt to smuggle in your own merit. Right? Like, I'm going to pray. I'm encouraged to pray because I feel like praying now. You know, I, I perceive in myself that disposition and frame. The command is not to um, pray only when you're in that frame. Pray always, right? Pray always, whether or not you're in that frame. And Rutherford's point is, even when you're not in that frame, that the praying is going to be a means to get you into that frame. Because you're praying in order to come into conformity to the will of God, right? Not because in some sense you're already perceiving yourself in conformity with the will of God. And that's what Brown, I think, is concerned about here. Just yeah. like the, I guess you could say that the Spirit doesn't work apart from the Word. <clears throat> the Spirit, like, we're to do our duty and the Spirit helps us along in our duties, right? Because the Spirit gives us that disposition. It's, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult for the believer subjectively to know, um, I think, when the Spirit is leading and when he's and, and when uh, the Spirit is, in a sense, uh, responding to what he's doing, right? It, 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 and again, this goes to this point, when there is this <clears throat> um, division between, you know, the, the doing of the duty and being rightly affected toward the duty, um Doing of the duty is one of the means to becoming rightly affected. It's not the other way around. We don't wait. You know, it's and and think of it in this sense. Quakers, right? <laughs> <clears throat> well, that's right. Yeah, the Quakers, you know, they all sit in a room and they wait until somebody, till the spirit moves somebody, and then they either pray or they start speaking or, or whatever. Okay. Uh, and, and that's exactly the wrong approach. All right. I mean, think about how this would translate into the realm of morality. You know, I'm only going to obey the commandments when I feel like it. Okay? The fact is, you should always feel like obeying God's commands. And when you don't, it's sin in you. But the answer to sin in you is not to sin more by breaking the command. Now here, <clears throat> Brown is saying... In a sense, you know, um, look, he's, he's not saying you shouldn't have your heart prepared. You shouldn't have your heart fixed on God when you pray. But he's saying when that's your focus rather than praying. And you wait until you have your heart fixed and established you're taking encouragement from that rather than from Christ.
right? To that extent, you're in danger of relying on yourself as being the ground for expecting the answer to prayer. And of course, when that's the case, guess what? You have no reason to believe God will answer that prayer. All right, there's a second thing, 339b. <clears throat> a second way we draw encouragement from something other than the name of Christ. And that is when we're encouraged to go about the duty of prayer because of inward peace, freedom from challenges of guilt, uh, or gross outbreakings of sin, or of guile and, and hypocrisy as not regarding iniquity in our hearts. And again, he says, look, I'm not saying that when you have um, inward testimony of your own sincerity and uprightness, that you might not take it as a subordinate encouragement. Right. Yeah, and it's the same with having your heart fixed. It's, it's the same proposition, really. But it's not your working that did it. It's, it's not... It's, it's not your work that brought you to that it's not your um, your being in a state of peace that is the ground of your prayer but again the ground I mean the state of peace if you have it is not because of what you've done but because of what Jesus has done so that shouldn't be the ground <clears throat> of your prayer or the encouragement of your prayer. A subordinate encouragement, just like having your heart fixed, if you understand and you you um, treat it as such, right? A subordinate, uh, you, you know, this is the Spirit of God working in me, not because of something that I've done or who I am. The Arminians have a lot of problems here. Of course, as um, I, I forget who it was who said that you know Arminians pray like Calvinists. You know they don't. They generally don't pray. Um, God, you know, respect the will of that person and and let that person do what they want. They pray, God, would you do this in and through that person? You know, so uh, generally. Um, only the only the most degraded Arminian, when he's praying, is going to pray like an Arminian. They generally, yeah, they they generally, uh, and a consistent Arminian in that respect is, you know, it's not even Christian prayer. <clears throat> now you're negotiating with God. You know, you're trying to you're trying to cut a deal with God, and and trying to get him to sort of strong arm somebody, but. You know, he can't really do that because you have to respect their free will and all of that. Anyway, uh, of course, God has plenty of ways to to um, move your will without violating uh, your freedom in doing so. Um, anyway, the uh, third way. 339C. Third way we uh, draw encouragement from something other than the name of Christ is when <clears throat> we draw our encouragement to the duty of prayer, mainly from the dispensations of the Lord seeming to smile on us and to favor us. 
Right, so we're <clears throat> we're um, only going to approach God, uh, and and again, this is the, the problem here is you're making providence your rule rather than the revealed will of God. That's always a problem. Right? When people elevate providence, you know, especially, and this is this is a, a problem I think that some reformed or Calvinistic uh, people, um, people who have Augustinian theology or Pauline theology at all, <clears throat> that they have this um, uh, tendency to uh, view, you know, well, I mean, whatever God ordains is right. Well, that's true um, in the abstract, but providence is still not your guide or my guide for for action, right? The secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong unto the sons of men that we should do them. That's what Moses says in Deuteronomy. Okay, so we're not called to try to figure out the secret purposes of God and and sort of help along his providence. Uh, we are called to behave in a manner consistent with the the uh, the law, the moral law that he's revealed. <clears throat> well, when we take encouragement, because providentially things seem to be going well, and we think, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is a great time to pray. We're not praying in reliance on Christ, and he he actually um, uh, points out, you know, there. There's a need to pray, um, not only when God's providence is smiling upon us, but, you know, especially when his providences are frowning on us. Okay, these are calls to prayer. Somebody calls to prayer. Now, is it, is there encouragement to be taken when, uh, through prayer you find some relief in those frowns? You know, there's a smile cracking through. Sure. But it's not the ground or the basis upon which you should be encouraged to pray. <clears throat> All right, the fourth thing, 339D. The fourth way in which we draw encouragement from something other than the name of Christ is... Um, <clears throat> that we see and have clear apprehensions of our interest in God through Christ, uh, that is, that we're reconciled. Um, that enmity is taken away, and, and yet when temptation uh, would, would scare us from the duty on account of, you know, the possibility that we're not reconciled to God. Right? So, in other words, you're, you're in a state of, you, know, you perceive yourself to be reconciled to God, you're praying fine, uh, but because of temptation, 
you know, you're shaken to uh, maybe ask if you really are reconciled to God, and and you know, you're focused on that. And he's saying that that's not <clears throat> when you're thinking that way, either in either direction, it's a problem, because again, you are approaching God based upon your perception of whether or not you're reconciled to God as though being reconciled to God was the basis upon which you are praying. But really the basis upon which you're to pray is what Christ has done, not necessarily even what he's done in and through you. Okay, so... <clears throat> the reason, you know, he gets into this, I think, is, is um, it's very easy for people when, they, when they're thinking in this fashion. Uh, they're going to pray when they're when they're sensible of being reconciled to God, but the moment temptation comes, the moment there's some some succumbing to some temptation, um, there's almost a helplessness, and, you know, I must not be reconciled to God. That's not, God didn't say, you know, that he would have <clears throat> people pray to him uh, because they're reconciled to him. Right? All men are actually commanded to pray to God. Now, for your prayer to be acceptable, you need to be reconciled to him. But just because your prayer is not going to be acceptable, if you were not reconciled, again, doesn't mean that you should be adding sin to sin by disobeying another command and not praying to God. Right? You should be praying to God that <clears throat> if you're not reconciled, that you'd be reconciled. <clears throat> the point of all of these is really, <clears throat> in every case, what they have in common is they're going outside of Christ. Right? And, and um, a lot of it is falling back on um, what, what I would... Uh, call experimental religion. You know, these are, and, and I'm not saying experimental religion, and Brown is not saying experimental religion is not important. It is. But you have to have fixed in your mind, you have to have a very clear sense that experimental religion is not the gauge of duty, right? Because your religious affections will rise and fall. They're going to um, sometimes be more ardent than others. Uh, sometimes you're going to be in a, in a state of uh, prevailing sanctification. Sometimes you're going to uh, be struggling with some sin. And if you turn away from Christ to focus on your experimental religion, uh, 
you're going to be discouraged from praying. More often than not, you're going to be discouraged from praying. But even when you pray, <clears throat> as he points out, uh, you're in danger of placing your, your, or drawing your encouragement from something other than what Jesus has done. Right? It's something in your experience. All right, let's move on to the second thing. The second particular it shows us we're not praying in Christ's name alone. 340. The second thing <clears throat> he mentions here is um, when we ask not in the name of Christ, when we approach not with boldness and confidence on account of his being our mediator and so on. So in other words, when we don't have boldness and confidence, then we're not making proper use of Christ. We're not, <clears throat> we're not in fact, praying in his name alone. <clears throat> How do we know that? Because the only reason you wouldn't be bold the only reason you wouldn't be confident in your praying to God is if, and, and, and it would be a good reason, if something of yourself was, in fact, uh, to be taken into that equation. Right? But if, if your confidence is in Christ alone, if your trust I should say is in Christ alone. The boldness and confidence in your approach to God in prayer should be there because there's nothing lacking in him. You're not approaching in any respect. And this is <clears throat> uh, this is one of these things where I think people get a, a little confused um, we, we ought to approach God obviously uh, we should approach God reverently and we've talked about that sort of thing there's a false modesty <clears throat> or a modesty that is um, uh, drawn from and grounded in a sense of our own sinfulness, smallness, uh, you know, we're worms of the dust and, and all of that, which is all true. But when we pray to God with Christ as our mediator uh, and nothing of ourselves, there's no ground for any of that. He's the eternal Son of God incarnate. So this is why, you know, Abraham can argue with God about how many people are going to be saved. This is why, you know, Jacob can wrestle with God and and say to him, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. <clears throat> All right? You can't do that if there's something of you uh, as, as the ground of boldness and confidence. Okay, so 341, uh, wherein does the lack of boldness and confidence appear? 
Again, he lists four things. <clears throat> and I've alluded to uh, some of this already. But the first is this. When we're soon dashed and discouraged in the duty of prayer with a sense of our own unworthiness, our, our own sinfulness. But as Brown points out, and as I just pointed out, <clears throat> even though uh, we should have a sense of all those things, right, of our own sinfulness, our own nothingness before God, our ground for praying is what Christ has done. And particularly the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he maketh intercession continually for the saints. Right? He is continually interceding for his people. And so um, that should be the ground of our boldness and confidence. <clears throat> 341B uh, where does the lack of boldness and confidence appear? It says, when our approach is accompanied with what he calls a bastardly and sinful fear and despondency. In other words, when we come more like a malefactor before the judge <coughs> than a son coming to his father. So it is um, it's the duty of the believer to approach God in faith, right? And not uh, we don't come to God trembling with a sense of, of guilt because Christ has taken away all of that guilt that is in us by reason of sin. And so we, we, we need to be very careful that we approach God in faith rather than in fear. When we're approaching him fearfully, uh, that's an indication we lack the boldness and confidence. All right, C, or third, 341C. This is a third, uh, a third um, indication that we lack boldness and confidence. <coughs> And that is when there's not an open-heartedness in telling God all that plagues us, <clears throat> but there's a, a he calls it a 
sinful bashfulness so that we don't lay our case out before him freely. <clears throat> of course, um, again, this is this is a reason uh, why, and he points this out. Uh, um, people conceal things because they're fearful, and, and so. The lack of boldness and confidence, you know, ultimately goes back to that fear he was just talking about. But it, it's kind of an odd thing at this point. I, I, I know it's true, but uh, it's an odd thing when you think about it. Because if you understand God, you understand God really knows all of that. And yet there are people... <clears throat> There are people who don't want to um, confess to God, for example, that they're angry. You know, they're angry with God. They, they're just mad that this is the way it is. Um, there's, there's this idea, uh, you know, that you need to be careful. Uh, while there's a certain modesty in the way that we speak, that doesn't mean that we can't still be bold, nor that we shouldn't be open. That we shouldn't be trying to conceal things. Um, pointless. <clears throat> All right, 341D. <coughs> Lack of boldness and confidence appears when our prayers are accompanied with much fainting, hesitating, and doubting uh, whether or not they'll be received, right? Whether or not we'll be welcomed in them. Again, if you uh, if you're making use of Christ as high priest and advocate, uh, that boldness, that confidence shouldn't be lack, uh, shouldn't be uh, lacking there, right? You shouldn't have this gaping um, hole in your your um, praying. <coughs> All right, let's move on to the third particular that shows uh, that we're not praying in Christ's name alone, 342. He says, we don't make use of the name of Christ as we ought in prayer. Whenever our hope of acceptance in performing of that duty is drawn from some other thing than Christ alone. It feels like uh, Brown, to a certain extent, repeats himself on some of these points. 
you have to understand he's taking up these points and, and sort of turning them a little bit at a time for your contemplation uh, because it's important that you don't make these kinds of errors if you would have an acceptance before God in your prayers. You can't let something else get in the way. <clears throat> so, 343, where it appear that we place our hope of acceptance in other things. Again, he um, lists four things. He says, first of all, 343a, it appears we place our hope of acceptance in other things when we um, we hope to be accepted from our freedom from an accusing or challenging conscience for former sins. Just because we are not uh, we're not suffering from an accusing or challenging conscience for former sins, that shouldn't be the hope of our acceptance. Again, when you're doing that, as he points out, uh, when we look for our acceptance from anything else other than Christ, we've departed from Christ and we've laid him aside. <clears throat> right, 343b. Appears we place our hope of acceptance uh, in other things from our freedom from wandering thoughts or such like miscarriages in prayer. In other words, we began to think, oh, well, my mind used to wander when I prayed. Now I'm focused. Or uh, things distracted me, you know, previously in prayer, but no more. And again, the problem with this is the ground of your confidence, in this case for hope of acceptance, shifts from Jesus to something that is found in you. Well, it's never a good thing. Right, 343C, third thing in which it appears we place our hope of acceptance in something other than Christ is from when we uh, place our hope of acceptance in our freedom and liberty from bonds in prayer. Now, what he means by this is 
it may be that for a time, a period in your life, uh, maybe some some point early on as a believer, maybe some point uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, whatever it is, at some point you, you there's a shift when you pray. Uh, you you were previously uh, restricted. You found it hard to pray. Now all of a sudden your your heart is open and you are um, very much uh, inclined and the words come easily into your mind. And he's saying, don't place your hope of acceptance in that. Now you can take encouragement from all this, correct? Yes. He says, God, he's a <clears throat> he says, yeah, he, okay. he says, look, um, when the Lord looses the bonds of the soul and enlarges the heart to seek and receive, he usually opens his hand to give. So he says, this liberty and enlargement of heart may be a good sign and token that there's good return at hand, but it shouldn't be the, made the, the ground and basis of our acceptance. Right? Again, we need to be careful that we do not make this the ground because the minute we do that, we're, we basically we're shuffling Jesus off to the side. So we're, we're uh, minimizing and or neglecting what he's actually done. <clears throat> 343D, fourth way it appears we place our hope of acceptance in other things is when from the warmness of frame that we find ourselves in while about the duty of prayer, uh, we hope to gain acceptance. And again, he says, look, I, I grant it's very commendable when the heart is warm toward God. That's not the point. The point is... That should not be owned as a ground of our hope of acceptance with God. Now, all these things I think are important because so much of modern uh, evangelical Christianity today is only focused on feeling. Right? How you feel, how... Uh, you, um, what kind of emotions are excited in you, and all of that. And, and again, Brown is not saying that that is unimportant. Um, he's not saying that that is something that is to be entirely neglected. He is saying that all of that must be subject to the Word of God. The problem with evangelical Christianity in this respect is this. 
evangelical Christianity in our day has made um, has made your feelings the guide and the gauge of the genuineness of your Christianity. And Reformed theology is saying no. Uh, the gauge is objective, right? Uh, now, saying it's objective does not mean that subjectively you shouldn't be rightly affected toward that. You should. And you should endeavor to be rightly affected toward that. But that's a matter of you really allowing your faith and your mind to lead, or I should say your mind to lead in faith rather than your feelings to lead in faith. Right? This emotional um, approach to Christianity has uh, has netted us a church it's like the Everglades, right? It's uh, 150 miles wide and it's two inches deep. Right? We we need to be uh, more like the Pacific Ocean, wide and deep. So we're not dismissing all concern for experimental religion. But we're saying that experimental religion has to be within the parameters of the Word of God. Right? The, the Spirit of God works in tandem with the Word of God, which, by the way, was inspired by the Spirit of God. Right? So if you've got the Spirit of God acting, uh, or the claims of the Spirit of God is acting in ways that are outside of this uh, Word of God, or beside that word of God, that should concern you. Because God's word and spirit in his church are always working together. <clears throat> so again, Brown is not disparaging having your heart warmed or enlarged in prayer. He's saying, just don't make these things a ground of your hope of acceptance. These are good things in and of themselves. But good things can become bad very quickly when they're misused. My, my table saw is a great tool uh, for woodworking. But if I uh, use it to vivisection living creatures, uh, it's not such a good thing anymore. So you need to be careful. Emotions and, and affections are good when they are not in command of the parade. Paul says when when you're when they're in the command of the parade, they're your God. When your God is your belly, you're your enemies of the cross of Christ. So when you get this mixed up, so far from being good Christians, according to the Apostle Paul, you're actually very bad Christians. And maybe no Christians at all. Probably. All right.
fourth particular here. Uh, the fourth particular that shows us we're not praying in Christ's name alone, 344, <coughs> is when, whenever we make use of, or we, 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 I should say, don't make use of the name of Christ rightly, when we lay the weight of the merit or ground on which we expect a return and good answer on anything beside Jesus and his mediation. And so whenever we're entertaining <clears throat> the slightest thought and we're going to talk about a, a few particulars here but I think you're going to see to a certain extent all of these that he, he breaks them down into more specifics but all of them are, I think, really variations on I'm a, a relatively good person. Right? So God should answer my prayers. And as long as we have, you know, uh, monsters of iniquity in the world, people can always point to them and, and say, well, I'm certainly better than that person over there. <clears throat> All right, so, uh, wherein does it appear that we find merit for answer in something other than Christ? 345a. Uh, he says, whenever we expect an answer in hearing because of our present good frame. <clears throat> and he says right after this, by the way, um, a bad frame, a bad disposition may in fact mar and hinder being heard in prayer and obstruct getting good answer in prayer. Right? But we should not expect to get an answer in prayer because we're in a good frame. I mean, I, I suppose if we were to parse this a little more, we could actually say that if you think that you should get an answer in prayer because you're in a good frame, you're really not in a good frame. But Brown is speaking to people according to their own conceits. Right? You, you believe yourself to be in a good frame. Okay, fine. Don't make that the, the, um, the meritorious uh, ground of, of expecting an answer to prayer. Good frame, <clears throat> a good frame uh, can be a very good thing. It is a very good thing in prayer. <clears throat> but it's not the ground of you're expecting a good answer in prayer. All right, 345B, the second uh, way it appears that we find merit for answering something other than Christ is when we look for an answer on account of some victory over some evil or corruption or temptation or some other thing that we possess after some wrestling. So this, this is sort of like... Um, 
gospel. What he's talking about is uh, uh, people appealing to God in prayer, and they, you know, their their appeal is well. You know, everybody else maybe did X, but I didn't do that. Okay, so you didn't commit some evil, right? You maybe overcame some corruption or temptation. And and maybe even after struggling, he says. But that does not... Unless you're a papist, right? that doesn't, and, and they're wrong about this, but they think this, you know, that doesn't create a, merit. Yeah, a treasury of, of merit, you know, the works of supererogation or, or what have you. Right? Remember when, you know, when you've done everything you were supposed to do, you're still just an unprofitable servant after all. You know, your obedience is the least of what is expected, right? And you're not going to do anything more than that. So what is it you really think you have to offer here? <clears throat> All right. The third way it appears we find merit for answer in something other than Christ is when we look for our answer because of our good vows, purposes, resolutions alike. And again, he says, these can't be condemned in themselves, right? Good vows, good resolutions, and so on. But I, I just saw um, a story last night about uh, a celebrity whose wife is in some, I think they put her in a medically induced coma, and he, you know, he made a comment that he... Um, he wanted everyone to pray and he was praying to God and he was he was promising God that he would stop swearing and stop smoking and and you know so whatever virtue there is and to stop swearing and stop smoking and all of that look if he thinks that God is going to answer his prayers because of that uh, he's finding uh, encouragement taking encouragement from something and expecting a good answer from something of his own merit. That's all they can really do because it's all they really have. Not, it's not good. And and I don't know. I mean, some of these people, when they talk this way, if you look into it, these are people who profess to be Christians. You know, and they and they say things like this. I mean, they they have some outward profession. Uh, it's not a very good thing for people to be talking this way. Right? I, I sort of expect it from, from Roman Catholics because they've been deluded to thinking in, in that fashion. Um, but Protestants shouldn't be thinking that way. Anyhow. <clears throat> uh, 346, what's the fifth particular that shows us we're not praying in Christ's name alone? Is, um, when uh, he says we don't make use of the name of Christ rightly when, when we in prayer do not make use of Christ's strength and grace to help us pray 
here again, he gives uh, a list of uh, three things. Uh, wherein it appears that we don't pray in Christ's strength, 347. 347a, first of all, it appears that we don't pray in Christ's strength. When we pray from a custom which we have, or from a gift or a habit, without a new stirring up of the grace of God. Now you may say this sounds like he's perhaps contradicting what he said earlier. Um, but what he is saying is actually... Uh, that while that uh, that's not the ground of our being heard, he says. On the other hand, um, you know, it, we're, we're, when we make that somehow the ground of our acceptance or our or our hope or or anything like that. Uh, we're detracting from Christ. We're pushing off the side. Now, on the other hand, he's saying, if when we pray, we simply go about it by rote, right, or by gift, or something of that sort, rather than relying upon the Spirit of God to to um, give it fresh influences to carry us through the duty of prayer, we're not really making use of Christ. Rightly. So he's, he's beginning to come, I think, full circle. Uh, you know, he doesn't want you, again, to walk away and think that he's not concerned about experimental religion. That experimental religion is... In fact, the only way you're going to make right use of Christ in prayer. But you, you have to, again, you have to have all of this in its proper order. All of this, um, should be done in a, in a manner that is, um, edifying and, uh, is pursued in a way that makes correct use of Christ. Okay, so the second thing, and this is, I think, also relating to this, and now we're seeing that, you know, in this point that he is concerned about the in, what we call the interior life or the, um, uh, the experimental religion, the, the experiential aspect of all of this, and that is, uh, it appears that we find, uh, or that we don't pray in Christ's strength, uh, 347b, when we act not by faith on the gracious promises of help and assistances of the Spirit through Christ. So we should be uh, we should be seeking the assistance of the Spirit of God. We should be 
uh, oriented toward the promises of God, uh, and particularly promises in prayer of assistance of the Spirit of Christ. And then third, the third uh, thing wherein it appears we don't pray in Christ's strength is when we're not in the conviction of the weight of the duty of our unfitness and inability for it, our hazard of miscarrying in it, and, and so on. In other words, and this is, this is, uh, I think an odd thing. He's asking you to juxtapose uh, these two things in your mind, if you think about it. And he's saying, on the one hand, you have to maintain a proper conviction, uh, both of, of the weight of the duty of prayer together with your unfitness to pray. Bearing in mind at all times that you really are not fit for the duty, that is, in and of yourself, and at the same time, as you said earlier, uh, avail yourself of Christ so you come with a holy boldness. Right. So this is not a false modesty, and this is not like a despondency in, in uh, your sinfulness, but it is a realistic, heartfelt uh, apprehension of who and what you really are. Right. By the way, that's why you need the influences of the Spirit of God. By the way, that's why you should be uh, oriented in all of your praying toward the uh, toward attaining that promise of the assistance of the Spirit praying uh, with you and through you. But Augustine prays, you know, guide me, Holy Spirit, teach me. Yeah. Help the Spirit. Because the Spirit is one who unites us to Christ, and in Christ we know the Father. Yes. There has to be a continual appeal. Right? There has to be that awareness. So there's a sense, again, in which as you're praying, um, not necessarily when you're praying aloud, as when you're praying by yourself, um, but there is a sense in which you're in, in praying, you're going to be racing between this idea that I need to be bold in my approach to God, um, but my boldness is not of myself. My boldness is holy in Christ, and I have to hold all of this. You know, I'm, I'm not praying or expecting to be heard because I have a right frame or that my, my um, heart is enlarged, but I... I will never pray aright unless the Spirit of God is working in me. Okay, so these things, it's, it's like the hand and the glove, you know, the internal and the external. And they all have to be in proper balance and relation. We have to have all of this in some sense, 
before us as we're praying. We don't have to have, uh, he's not, I don't think he's, he means we need to be consciously thinking about every aspect of this. But the thing is, when you meditate upon something, it's, it's like anything that, you know, like you learn to play a musical instrument, you learn a language. After a while, um, it becomes second nature. And, and that's in a sense of what needs to happen here. All of this needs to be meditated upon to the point where it becomes second nature, where you just doesn't even cross your mind. Uh, for example, it would be possible for that right frame to be the ground of your hope of acceptance. Uh, and at the same time, that it wouldn't cross your mind that your prayer is going to be acceptable to God if the Spirit of God isn't working a right frame in you. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to the sixth particular uh, that shows us we're not praying in Christ's name alone, 348. It says, whenever we don't put our prayers into Christ's hand, they may be accepted through the perfume of his incense. And, and what he means by this is... Um, We, we have to, we, we don't know what it is or for what uh, it is that we ought to pray. We don't pray as we ought to pray because we don't know all that is necessary. And we don't have all of the information. We don't have all of the, the, um, uh, sometimes even all the questions. And so we offer up our prayers in conform, you know, they, they need to be conformed as much as possible to the revealed will of God, but we do so uh, placing them in the hand of Christ who is going to take that and make it really what it ought to be. Right? He's going to perfume it with his incense. Um, because, for example, sometimes we pray for something that we think we want uh, because uh, behind that there's some broader desire. And in the course of praying, you know, we end up with something altogether different and then we come to realize that that actually is the answer to that prayer, right? That, that, that that's actually what we were seeking in that prayer. Uh, but we just didn't know it at the time. All right, so it, where does it appear that we fail to put our prayers in Christ's hand? Says there, there are a couple of things here. First, uh, it... It appears that we fail to put our prayers in Christ's hand when we are tickled and willing, uh, when we find the duty has gone well with us, and we've been helped to discharge it to our satisfaction. 
and not found a languishing um, in prayer nor observed confusion and indistinctness in the same or other evils of that kind. In other words, basically when, you know, this is the idea that um, when we when we um, judge of the well-doing of the duty or, or not according to our own mind rather than the mind of Christ. All right, uh, the second thing wherein it appears we fail to put our prayers in Christ's hand, 349b. <clears throat> when a sense of provocation mars all our hopes and causes us to conclude, it's in vain to wait for a return of prayer. And his point here is, you know, if <clears throat> as long as we're in this body of flesh, right, we're going to have challenges, there are going to be provocations. Um, we stand in constant need of Christ's blood to wash our prayers and his incense to make them acceptable to the Lord. Okay, and when, when we don't have that... Uh, Then, when there are those downturns, you know, we uh, we're constrained by it. We're, you know, our prayers are marred by it. All right, let's look at the seventh particular, showing us that we are not praying in Christ's name alone. Three fifty. <coughs> says um, we we see that we're not praying in Christ's name alone when we don't make right use of the name of Christ in prayer. Uh, we don't make right use of the name of Christ in prayer. When we're not quieting ourselves as to the event of the duty on Christ's merits in, in intercession. So, again, there are four things here that he gives us. Uh, 351, wherein does it appear we're not quieting ourselves in the studio of prayer. 351a. He says, it appears, for example, when the devil raises new storms in the soul after prayer and, uh, and says, you know, take this for the answer of your prayer. <clears throat> and then he'll, he'll go on to say, you know, will you will you still go on in prayer when this is all the fruit of it? Pray and, and things uh, things seem to get worse, and there's the devil who's stirring up the storm, 
saying, there you go, there's the, there's an answer to your prayer. Want to well, keep praying about that? You shouldn't be surprised, right? Because, I mean, prayer is, is how the world has changed, right? Yes. And, of course, Satan's going to try to distract you and, and turn it off from praying because by prayer, that's how he's defeated. He's he's defeated according to the prayers of the saints. Yeah. So whatever God is going to do, he's going to, to he's going to put it in the hearts of his people to petition him to do it. <clears throat> All right. 351b. Uh, wherein does it appear we're not quieting ourselves into this duty of prayer? It says, when challenges of old sins and late sins arise in the soul, and especially challenges about failings in prayer. Says, when this happens, what we should do is we should basically answer with this. We've laid the weight of all on Christ. And we quiet ourselves on his being our high priest and on his intercession. Right? We, we already know what our shortcomings are. We already know our failings. And we freely acknowledge all of that. Again, our confidence in prayer is not in who we are or what we can do. <clears throat> right, the third thing, wherein it appears we're not quieting ourselves in the duty of prayer, 351c. So when we find the wheels of the soul drive heavily while we're about the duty uh, that through want of faith or through other discouragements. He says we, we should be rolling the whole matter onto Christ. It's not, it's, it's not uh, going to be carried through our lack of faith or through our discouragements, our lack of faith is really immaterial. If we're, again, if we're making right use of Christ, and we should quiet ourselves in that duty by focusing on that, right? Not on our lack of faith, not on some other discouragements that might arise. Right? And then 351D, the fourth thing, wherein it appears that we are not quieting ourselves in the duty of prayer. <clears throat> uh, when we get no intimation of God's favor in our addresses or a sense of access as we expect it. He says, even, even then, it should appear, um, we should cast the burden of all on Christ in quieting ourselves in Christ being our high priest intercessor. So that uh, not getting an intimation of God's favor or sensible access uh, as expected, that, again, is not the ground of our confidence. We can't quiet ourselves if we're going, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to be quiet before God and, and confident when we're trying to gauge 
our acceptance with God in prayer on something in ourselves. It's just never going to happen. So in, in all of these points, you know, the, the great caution is that we don't try to divide the work and ground and confidence of our prayer between ourselves and Christ. That we need to be continually cognizant of the fact that all of our confidence, all of our hope, and everything, uh, the, the basis upon which we can quiet ourselves before God in prayer, is nothing in of in us or of us or or from us. It's all of God. Um, so that's going to affect your prayer as well. It, I guess, also taking away from the fact that it's going to affect your prayer, but you, you, in, 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 um, it's going to hinder you. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying. It's okay, but it's not the ground of your acceptance. Right. Okay. So your sin, your sin may be the ground of your hindrance, right? Your uh, your infirmities may in some sense be the ground of hindrance, but they're not the ground of acceptance. And, and if they are in fact, if you're making use of Christ, right, if you are uh, taking hold of him in faith, you know, you're in a penitent state and so on, then all of those things are uh, are really washed out in what he's done, right, in his blood. And so they're not hindrances in that respect. And they shouldn't be. But is that an overstepping in either direction? Yeah, the, the, the thing is about uh, these things, what, what I was saying earlier in the book, um, you may, when you go to pray, for example, you might think, well, um, I've had uh, wandering thoughts, right? I've had difficulty, or I've committed this sin. And, and I'm not in the right frame. And all of the, you know, you can go through all. That is not sufficient ground not to pray, right? Any more than, uh, you know, when it comes to work, for example, you can get up and just say, "Well, I don't feel like working today," right? That, you that's get back into that. you right. You you have uh, that duty and. You know the call to duty, and that in that call to duty, the promise, if you're a believer, that you will find grace to help in time of need. And so that's that's why he says, on the one hand, 
you know, a, a, a bad frame can hinder. But it shouldn't prevent you, right? All of these things that can come up on your side of the equation shouldn't prevent you. They actually, uh, if you rightly considered them, you know, temptation and uh, wrestling with sin, these are all actually calls to pray more, not less. And, and calls to ask God to work in you both to will and do according to his good pleasure. You know, if you're praying and you know you don't have the right frame, you should be praying you have the right frame. That goes back to that question of, you know, are, were, do you think by not telling God he doesn't know that this is a problem? Of course he does, right? But uh, it's something altogether different when people are made to confess. There's a reason why the church makes people confess certain sins, you know, publicly, public sins, uh, generally, you know, need to be confessed publicly uh, in their in the process of restoring them to the church. You know, it's one thing to be told again and again, and and even you know, sort of quietly to yourself to acknowledge when you say out loud um, that you have done X, Y, or Z. When you acknowledge that out loud uh, that at that point <clears throat> you are in fact most able to be um, assisted in in you know in all of your your uh, uh, downcast situation right you're you're at a point where things can begin to mend so God wants you to tell him. He already knows, but he wants you to tell him. You know, you uh, you need to be not just aware, but consciously aware and, and placing it uh, in in a sense of the forefront. You know, this is this is an issue. Anyway, um, so. Again, the, the whole chapter can be divided really into, uh, you know, whether or not we're we're trying to split the glory with Jesus in praying, and he's saying we can't do that. All right, in chapter eighteen, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a, a use of trial, whether we ask in the name of Christ or not. So it's going to be. Uh, helping us examine the question whether or not you're actually doing this. And that'll be our topic next time.